Our text this morning is from Matthew 14. We're studying another important scene in the Gospels uh, about the life of the Apostle Peter. Uh, as, as I've been given opportunity to preach over these few months, as, as Pastor Steve has been preaching through First Peter, it's been interesting and, and I've enjoyed preaching through, uh, looking at a number of scenes in Peter's life in the Gospels that hopefully give us additional insight into his letter written those many years later. There's a sermon outline on pages 10 and 11 in the bulletin if, if that would help you follow along as well. The setting in the context of Matthew 14 is one of sadness and discouragement for Jesus. At this point, we're sort of in the middle of Jesus' public ministry. There's growing and public opposition from the religious leaders of the day. So instead of, so there's becoming among them a settled opinion that Jesus is a problem, that Jesus is wrong, that we need to oppose his work. Uh, we see evidence of that in chapter 12. As he heals on the Sabbath and they criticize him for it. In chapter 13, we get this section of parables which are full of the disciples' sort of lack of understanding and their slowness to grasp what Jesus was saying. At the end of chapter 13, Jesus is rejected by the people of his hometown. They aren't impressed with him. They're not impressed with his wisdom or his mighty works. Then the first part of chapter 14 brings us the story of the death of John the Baptist, which is, you know, this ridiculously sordid tale about the lustful weakness of Herod and the scheming of his wife, who used to be his brother's wife, and and all of that, um, John getting killed by speaking the truth to those who are in power. Verse 13 of chapter 14 tells us that Jesus wanted to withdraw from the public for a while to mourn his cousin and his friend John. But the crowds followed. They didn't let him escape. They even followed him to a place where there was no food. And so the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is actually an interruption in Jesus' plan to withdraw for a bit during this season of sadness and discouragement. And so that's where we pick up the story right after this miracle that shouts out, to the world, Jesus is the bread of life. The, the feeding of the 5,000 recorded in all four Gospels will pick up the story immediately after that in chapter 14, verse 22. It's on page 619, um, 692 if you're using the Pew Bibles as well. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It is a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, You are the Son of God. Please pray with me. 
Father, as we come now to your word, we need your help to understand it. And we see in it that it's our food, that it's our nourishment, that it's what we need to live on spiritually. And so we pray that you would feed us this morning from your vast riches of, of health and all that you have. Feed us in our weakness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you perhaps saw the story a few weeks ago of a woman named Diana Nyad and her remarkable open water swim from Cuba all the way to Key West, Florida. So in this swim by herself, she covered 110 miles with during about 53 hours in the water. Pretty amazing, isn't it? A couple of things, if you saw the story, a couple of things that I think were comp- particularly compelling about the story. First was that this was that she had failed the three previous times when she had tried it. So this was actually her fourth time of trying this open water swim uh, all the way from Cuba to Key West. Uh, the second thing that was kind of amazing and compelling about the story was that she's 64 years old. So this woman who is 64 years old, uh, you know, uh, had a long career as a long distance swimmer, was able to reach her goal and, and make it this, uh, this year, just a few weeks ago. She was hailed, of course, as an inspiration for her dedication, for her perseverance, for her endurance, for not giving up. But what if she hadn't made it on the fourth try? What if she had given up after three unsuccessful attempts, or if she had failed on her fourth try? Would we call her a quitter? Or would we call her a remarkable swimmer who never reached her goal? This morning, I think, as we consider Peter's faith, we have similar sorts of questions to ask. Is Peter a champion in the faith? Or is he a failure in the faith? We see Peter's strengths and his weaknesses. We see his success and his failings. All of this is displayed for us in this account. Would we call him a a faithful disciple? Or would we call him a weak one who lacked faith? What does this story mean for us this morning about our own faith or our lack thereof? Is it all or nothing? Is it a mixture of faith and doubt? We'll get to Peter's faith in a bit and the interesting story of him walking on the water. But we begin with Jesus, of course, who's the true champion of our faith. Jesus, of course, who's the hero of the story. So as we pick it up in uh, verse 22... Says immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Jesus finally reaches his goal from verse 13 that he can spend some time alone in prayer. The text doesn't tell us exactly why Jesus wanted the disciples to go across the lake ahead of him. It's kind of interesting to think about how would he have gotten there. I guess he just had planned this all along. Perhaps the issue of why he sent the disciples ahead was actually about the crowds. In the parallel account in John 6, John tells us that after this miracle, the people were ready to take Jesus by force and make him their king. And maybe Jesus didn't want the disciples to see this kind of wrong-headed enthusiasm from the crowd. The crowd was pursuing the wrong ideas of what it means that Jesus is the king. So Jesus sent the disciples away and dealt with the crowd a little bit longer before dismissing them. 
In the midst of this discouraging season for Jesus, I think there's no other way that we can read the middle part of this account. The context of it makes it clear that this was a difficult time. In the midst of this discouraging season, Jesus gets the wrong kind of encouragement. Right? The crowds are pursuing him for the wrong reasons, to make him their, their idea of a king, who is a ruler who fills our stomachs and who keeps us amazed and entertained. This is right in line, of course, with one of Satan's temptations from Matthew 4. To show Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world and promise them all to him, if only he would bow the knee to the enemy. I think there's something profound that we should notice about the nature of this temptation. Jesus faces a very real temptation in the midst of a discouraging season of life. And his response is to pray. There's something mysterious about Jesus and prayer, about Jesus' need to pray, his pattern of seeking his Father. We see it all through the Gospel accounts. It seems to be a profound reminder of his humanity, his human nature. He was tired. He was discouraged. He was spent and worn out by the demands upon his shoulders, the misunderstandings of the crowd, and even his inability to get away from them for a little bit. We see clearly, of course, that Jesus was a man of sorrows when he walked on this earth, as Isaiah 53 tells us. So he prayed. And of course, we don't know exactly what he prayed for. We wonder. The context, context would give us many clues, possibilities, that he prayed that he would withstand this temptation. It's a very real temptation from the crowds to do what was right in order to, I mean, to be the king. And to take that in a visible way, though, of course, Jesus knew this was not the time. He could have prayed that God would be near to John's family, to John's disciples, that his disciples, that Jesus' disciples, and that Jesus' hometown would more clearly understand who he was. We can imagine all of these kinds of things and more, but the pattern is clear. To take, Jesus took his sorrows, his temptations, his discouragements before his father, during this time. And I think we should see the same kind of pattern is needed in our lives. Temptations seem stronger when we're discouraged or sad, don't they? We're more likely to fall in a time of struggle if we don't pray. Trying to medicate our hurts with our sins is a common problem that makes us feel even more miserable and guilty and continues in our lives, can, can continue in our lives a sort of downward spiral where we feel worse and worse about ourselves and so we sin more and more. It's simple enough, of course, to say that we should pray more. We should. We should. We should repent of our prayerlessness. But it's also not enough just to feel guilty about it and to seek to try harder because that's not really a gospel motivation, Right? Instead, I think when we're despondent about our own prayer life or lack thereof, I think we should ask this question, what are the barriers in my life that keep me from praying? Deep in our hearts, the kind of things that we wouldn't speak out loud, but our habits would reveal. These kinds of questions, do I really believe that my prayers will make a difference? Do I think that God really listens? Would I rather try to make it through on my own without God's help, assuming he wanted to help anyway? Why do I struggle to pray? Why do you struggle 
to pray if you do? What can I repent of? That goes more deeply just than I don't do this activity enough. But that goes to the heart of why. Why don't I do this activity enough? What would it mean for me to do it more? To pray, to fellowship with my Father in Heaven. In asking the question and really pondering it, what should we repent of? I think we have to also ask the follow-up question to remind ourselves, what has Jesus done even for me? How good it is to remember that Jesus knows my weakness, even in prayer, and that failure, too, is covered by his blood. How good it is for us to remember our weaknesses so that we would turn to him for strength. Our prayerlessness sometimes rises from the notion that we're strong. Prayer reminds us that we're not And he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. It's not just a good idea. It's the definition of survival for Jesus and for us when we recognize that life's burdens are great. John Piper uses the illustration. I may have shared uh, this with you many times before. Prayer is, this is what John Piper says, prayer is not like an intercom to reach the kitchen in order for you know, our comforts and, and food to be brought to us, prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie that we use from the trenches in the heat of battle to call in reinforcements. Jesus shows us that prayer is survival when we realize that life's burdens are great. And he gives us a wonderful example here, demonstrating our need to pray, and even, of course, how good we, we, how good we know he is and how much we need to remember that he forgives us for our weaknesses and our lack of prayer, even for that. The rest of our passage connects with prayer in some interesting ways as we think about the disciples and about their faith. The subject of the passage, sort of the main part of this next part of Jesus walking on the water, of course, is Jesus demonstrating his power. But it's also, it centers around the question of faith. It takes faith to pray, right? The two are connected. This example of Jesus' prayer leads us right into the issue of the disciples and their praying. So, so we'll continue there in verse 23 in the second half of it. When evening came... He was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It is a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. So after spending a number of hours alone in prayer, Jesus decides to go out to his disciples walking on the water, demonstrating his power over nature itself. While Jesus has been praying, the disciples have been rowing. And a storm has come up such that they're, not, they're being beaten by the wind and the waves. Some of these guys, of course, are professional fishermen. We know that this, this doesn't seem like a, the kind of storm where they feel like they're in danger of drowning, but the kind of storm where they've been fighting against it for a long time and are exhausted. The fourth watch of the night was the last watch before sunrise, something like 3 to 6 a.m. in the Roman system. 
So they, if they departed around sunset, which seems likely, they've been rowing hard against the wind and the waves for at least six hours, maybe as much as nine or more. John's account tells us that the distance that they are from shore when Jesus reaches to them is three or three and a half miles. So for six to nine hours of these men rowing, they've managed to go only about three or three and a half miles. They're struggling. They haven't made a lot of progress, but give them credit, they haven't given up. They're still seeking to obey Jesus. He told them to go to the other side, and that's exactly what they're trying to do. Jesus sent them out into this storm, knowing that it would happen. And Jesus doesn't go to them immediately in this storm, but he does go to them to bring them relief in the midst of their distress. The disciples, of course, don't think it's Jesus at first coming to comfort them. They think it's a ghost. We have to remember the scene here. Picture a storm. So there's not much moonlight. There's not much light from the stars. Picture a world in which they don't have flashlights. I don't know if they had torches that could survive this kind of storm, but it seems sort of unlikely to me. So it's almost pitch black. And they're battling and they're rowing. And then they see something. Someone, something coming toward them on the water. I mean, that would be terrifying, right? I mean, what what would you think? People don't walk on the water. It's a ghost. It has to be something else, you know? Jesus, you know, comes to them. We have to put ourselves in their shoes a little bit to, to really picture how terrifying this would have been. Jesus seeks to reassure them. He says immediately, take courage. It's I, don't be afraid. It's interesting, one way that, we, that Jesus may have said it in the original language, if he was speaking Aramaic to them, is what we have, in, of course, in the New Testament, is captured in Greek. But if Jesus was speaking to them in Aramaic, probably what he said, instead of it is I, probably what he said is I am. Which, of course, would have reminded them who God is, and all of the promises that we see as God appeared to Moses in Exodus 3. I am who I am. Different places in the Gospels, when Jesus says, I am, there's one place when he's being arrested, and the soldiers fall down to the ground, just when he says that, and they stand up again. There's more than we have time for to get into all of that, of course, but Jesus is saying, I am, I'm here. It's not just me, but all of who I am. Take courage. Don't be afraid. The sermons about Peter, and in 1 Peter, have given me a great deal of appreciation for Peter. In all of his brashness, he lived a remarkable life. He's a fascinating character. But what he says here in verse 28 is really... It's funny. It's sort of remarkable. He says... Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And if you really think about this, there's almost nothing about that that makes sense to me. How about, if it's really you, why don't you get into the boat with us? If it's really you, why don't you make the storm die down as you did in chapter 8? Remember when the fierce storm blew up and you were sleeping and we had to wake you up? If it's really you, why don't you join us? Instead, what is Peter saying here? If it's really you, I'm going to challenge you to, you to prove that it's you by asking you to call me to jump out of this boat 
in the midst of the night, in the midst of the storm, and walk towards you on the water. I mean, is there anything about this that makes sense? I'm not sure what kind of boat this was, but how many feet would it have to have been above the water? Three feet? Two feet? Four feet? I don't know. For him to jump out of it? So, so stand on this pulpit as it's rocking in the waves in the middle of, of blackness and jump out into the water trusting that you'll be able to stand on the water and not sink and move towards the shadowy person who you thought a few moments ago was a ghost. And picture what Peter is doing here. It's really kind of remarkable, isn't it? I think in many ways it reflects a great deal of faith. Maybe it's foolhardiness, I don't know. But it seems like faith. It seems like Peter is taking courage in response to Jesus' command and saying, okay, if it's really you, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump out and do something uh, amazing to join you. Interesting, isn't it? Verse 29. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. So for a moment, Peter meets the challenge. He walks on the water. He's going to Jesus. Jesus is sustaining Peter on the surface of the wind, of of the waves, buffeted by the wind and the storm. Jesus is proving that he's not a ghost. He's the real Jesus in the flesh. Peter is displaying a great deal of faith to have gotten to this point, to have jumped out of the boat, to walk to Jesus, to get near to him on the surface of the water. We don't know how far away he was, but there's, there's a moment or two or more here when Peter is, is walking on the water. And yet his faith doesn't sustain him very long. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. Beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. As we see Peter demonstrate so often in the gospel accounts, He can't really back up his words. He can't really make his actions appropriate for the situation. He can't really completely follow through, right? He thinks, you know, before he, uh, he speaks before he thinks. The text tells us that Peter became afraid when he saw the wind. And thus he began to sink. It seems like We're reading into the text a little bit, but it seems like when he saw Jesus, he walked on the water. When he saw the wind, he began to sink. And so Peter moves from issuing this great challenge and literally jumping out in faith and walking on the water to imminent drowning in the span of a few moments. For Peter, it's all about highs and lows, isn't it? And kind of getting them as closely together as possible. What does Peter do in response to this disaster? He calls out to Jesus, Lord, save me. He doesn't try to swim back into the boat. He doesn't try to fight through on his own. He turns back to Jesus with eyes of faith, knowing that Jesus can lift him out of the water again. Faith, unfaith, faith, all compacted together immediately in the story. Peter's the vehicle for the lesson. 
We can relate to him, can't we, in his successes and his failings. But Jesus, of course, is the hero and the point of the story. Verse 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Clearly, it went better for Peter when he was focused on Jesus. Clearly, that's part of the story here. But what's much more important, and what I would want for us to hear today, is Jesus kept his eyes on Peter. Jesus is the rescuer. He's the one who has the power over the wind and the waves. And the successes and the failings of his people do not hinder his ability to love, to sustain, to save all who call on him in their distress. Jesus' evaluation of Peter here is a little bit interesting. He calls him you of little faith is the way it's, it's, it's one word in the Greek. It's, he calls him a little faith. It's a, it's a noun with little put in front of it. And this term is used multiple times by Jesus in Matthew to describe his disciples. He calls them little faiths. And I think it's important for us to consider a bit because it captures it, doesn't it? It captures the reality, it captures two realities. It captures the reality of Peter's true faith. Peter believed in Jesus. Peter trusted him enough to do something pretty crazy and dangerous. But Peter's faith was little. It wasn't mature, it wasn't complete, it wasn't stable. Peter's faith vacillated. I think it's fair to say that my faith, maybe your faith, the church, that all of us, similarly, all of Jesus' disciples, could be called little faiths. For all of us who truly believe and trust in Christ, we have been given real faith that God has moved us from darkness to light. We really trust that Jesus is who he said he was. We really trust that this is God's word. We really believe it. And yet our faith can be small, it can be weak, it can flicker. Our faith can be swayed by our circumstances, our faith can falter in key moments. We're all little faiths, aren't we? Peter, we're, we're, we're like him, he's one of us. The story concludes in verse 32. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus gets into the boat and the wind calms down and the disciples worshipped. And as I mentioned, there's a similar account in Matthew 8 in which Jesus calms the storm, the one where he's sleeping in the boat. But we notice an important difference between the disciples' response in Matthew 8 and the disciples' response in Matthew 14. In Matthew 8, the disciples say, what kind of man is this, that the wind and the waves obey him? Here, the disciples say, truly, you are the Son of God. It's clear that they have grown in their faith. There's a change in them, of which they've more fully understood who Jesus is. They've placed more of their faith and their trust and their hope in him. There's a progress here. They've progressed. They've grown. As we begin to think about the passage for us today, what it means for us more specifically, I would offer a few basic thoughts about the nature of faith that the Bible commends. 
There's much, of course, that could be said about faith and the mixture of faith and doubt that lives within all of us. Here are a few thoughts. First, faith is a gift of God. We can't muster it up from within ourselves. It comes to us from the outside through the work of the Holy Spirit, and yet we're called to grow in faith. There's a calling upon us or some kind of responsibility to respond, to cultivate a life of faith, to make our faith stronger, to exercise it. There's something of our will that's involved, of our not just our mind, our, our mental assent, knowing who Jesus is, or, or just our emotions and feeling who he is, but there's also a, a component of our will that's involved in our actions being translated and our faith being translated into action, our actions proving what we believe. Faith is a gift, and yet we're called to grow in it. Faith needs an object. It believes or trusts in something. Thus, faith is only as good as its object. Faith in the wrong thing is more misguided than not having any faith at all. And much that we might place our faith in will disappoint and betray us. Jesus, of course, will not. Third, faith seems to come in various quantities which can change over time. Maybe I'm stating sort of obvious things here, but we're called to grow in faith, we're called to move forward and to gain more, that we can't be stagnant. Jesus can work with faith the size of a mustard seed, but Jesus wants that faith to grow. In varying degrees, we're always a mixture of of belief and unbelief, The prayer of the boy's father from Mark 9, I think, is a model prayer for us. If you remember the story, there was a boy who was, I think, demon-possessed. And Jesus said, do you believe? And the father said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. It's a scary thing to pray because sometimes the way that we grow in faith is through hardship, through suffering, through struggle. But I think it's a very real prayer, and I think it's one that that connects us to the heart of God and to who we are. I believe, help my unbelief. Finally, faith is connected to what we know or what we've experienced. Mark 6 has a parallel account in verse 52, indicates that Jesus chided the disciples for their lack of faith, partly because they had not understood about the loaves. They hadn't pondered, really pondered, the feeding of the 5,000. This amazing miracle that they just saw. Jesus chides them, their little faiths, because they had not understood about the loaves. They hadn't really thought about the fact that if Jesus can make, can feed 5,000 people, if he can multiply bread and fish, he has an amazing power over nature, and thus... They wouldn't have been so amazed when, they calmed the, when he calmed the storm. They wouldn't have doubted so when he did these sort of amazing things. They wouldn't have thought he was a ghost after he spoke to them, perhaps. whatever. The idea here is that if they would have pondered the lesson that just happened, their faith would have grown. If they would have understood about the loaves, they would have seen more clearly who Jesus was already. I think the same principle is true for us. As we see God work in the world, as we see him work in our world, our faith should grow. 
As we keep a record of what God has done, we can trust him to move again on our behalf. It's part of the reason why we see in the Old Testament people building monuments, putting rocks together, building huge things in altars, so that if their children say, why are these rocks piled up here? You can say, that's to, that's to remind us of what God did. God brought us through the raging river. God brought us through the sea. God did all of these things. God wiped out our enemies. And so we built a physical thing that we can see to remind us of what God did. I think it needs to be the same way in our lives. What are, what are things that God has done in our lives that we can point back to when we're doubting? You can say, God, because you answered that prayer, because you did that, I can trust that you're still with me in the midst of this situation. All of this, I hope, is practical in our lives today. Maybe we should ask the question, how is your faith in Christ Jesus? If we had a machine, a little like faithometer or something, how would it register for you? And if that isn't where you want to be, what might you do about it? Some of us perhaps need to hear Jesus' encouraging and sort of chiding words. Why do you doubt? The thing about faith, though, I would conclude with this. The thing about faith, though, is that we don't seek it for its own sake. We can't hoard it. We can't really measure it. We can't really compare it with others because we're all in different circumstances and we're all different kind of people, what it really is, is it's an expression of our relationship with Christ. So we don't exactly need more faith in itself, right? We need to get closer to Jesus. And in an ironic kind of way, the closer to him that we are, the more we know that we need him. Increasing and growing on our faith doesn't mean we get to this place where we can say, I've arrived at a place of strength. Rather, it's the exact opposite. It means that we know more of our own weakness and we know more of God's strength. And we trust more in his strength. Faith says, I'm weak, but I know that God is strong. Jesus is strong and his strength is kindness towards me. His strength is love towards me. Jesus has power. He's sitting on the throne. He's walking on water. He's calming the storm. It takes faith to believe this as we live in this world, that he is sitting on the throne, that he is the one with the power. And no matter what we're facing in our lives today, I want you to remember that from this passage, that Jesus is strong, that Jesus is the rescuer, And that his strength is expressed in kindness and salvation towards you and to me, to his church, all over the world. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, this morning we are mindful of who you are. And we want to be moved again by who you are and what you've done. How powerful and strong you are. Help us to see clearly our own weaknesses, that we would rely more on you and less on ourselves. Help our faith to grow for each of us in the trials that we face. Help us to turn and trust to you more and more. We pray these words from this passage, from your word, would would sink deeply into us today and change us. We pray it in your name.
Amen.